we had to, as, as um, uh, PhD students, we had to give presentations to the whole uh, Oxford physics department once a year. The first one I did was around climate change. So that was fascinating, gathering all the data around that. And it just, yeah, quite depressing that you know, what we were saying there, we're still saying now. But anyway, the next year I had to give a, a presentation on the discovery of the W and the Z boson. And, um, <laughs> and the people who discovered it were in the audience. <laughs> Welcome to An Eye in the Future. I'm joined today by Dr. Sarah Pearson. Sarah is currently working as the Deputy Director General Innovation Leader for Advanced Queensland. She did her PhD in particle physics at Oxford, but her research areas are extensive, also including medical physics, artificial intelligence, innovation, science communication, and science policy. She has worked at places like Cadbury, Questicon, and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. She's on multiple patents, cancer diagnosis and novel confectionery. I've personally been very excited for this interview to hear more about Sarah's exciting career and research. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Sarah onto the show. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. A pleasure, Cass. Great to be here. Now, I'd love to hear a bit more about your PhD journey since I'm currently halfway through mine. Uh, But before we get into that, um, can you update us on what you're up to at the moment? So right now, looking after innovation for the Queensland government, which is basically trying to build new economies here, so new jobs, new industries, um, ecosystems, building ecosystems for innovation, etc., etc. So a whole a huge range, including you know, the collaboration between research and industry. Um, so fabulous range of things to be getting involved in. Of course, right now, because of COVID-19, we're really pivoting everything towards how on earth do we help with that. Um, so there's been a lot of early stage stuff to to help those early stage ideas that are challenged right now, Um, but also making sure that we're continuing to build these jobs. Because as I describe it, it's jobs for today and jobs for tomorrow. Um, There's quite a lot of emphasis on um, jobs for today. And so, and that's quite relatively easy to understand. But what I'm trying to do is help people to understand that we can build jobs right now that will also be building jobs for tomorrow. Yeah. Awesome. Um, That, Almost, I think you've touched on it in that. Um, so it also almost feels strange to us, but what opportunities have you seen that were, in essence, created by the current pandemic? Oh, goodness. Um, so, for instance, there's a company called Coview, who is a, a telepresence health um, platform. So that's helped been, now been helping uh, doctors and, and patients to connect with one another. So you don't have to go to the doctor. You just, you know, you can just call them, but you can do it through telepresence. So that's what this platform does which i think is fantastic i don't have time to get the doctor anyway <laughs> covid or not covid so it's brilliant to actually be able to do it from anywhere you like and dial in and actually actually see them so not just the the, the sound so anyway they have grown like you would not believe um you know tens of folds at least if not thousands of folds so that that's a that's an example of a company that's going really well another one here in queensland called go one which is online education um particularly for people in working environments, so not necessarily the schools. But again, you know, anything that's online is really going to go going to go really, really well. Yeah, there's very much a transition onto online at the moment because when you can't actually be face-to-face, it's next best option, really. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I'm so grateful that we've got it because you wouldn't want to go through this pandemic without it. I, I listened to a talk you gave a few years back, so when you were at the University of Newcastle, um, found it absolutely fascinating. Uh, 
so you did your PhD in particle physics at Oxford. Um, super impressive. As a PhD student myself, can you tell us a bit more about the ups and downs you had during your PhD? Yeah, I'm absolutely delighted to do that. I'll give you the warts and all. I mean, when I when I first got admitted to it, it was like, woohoo, this is fantastic. This is so exciting. Wow, I'm going to be able to focus on particle physics for three years. How wonderful is that? Um, and then um, the way it worked at Oxford was that in particle physics, they're massive uh, collaborations. So the, the, um, there were several experiments going on around the world. And basically, you got told which one you were going to... You, you, you could talk a little bit about what your preferences were, but you basically got given a project. Um, so the project I got given was based in Hamburg. Uh, it was the Zeus um, pro, pro, uh, experiment on the DAISY accelerator in Hamburg. Anyway, so that was brilliant, again, because it was international. I really wanted to work on a big international project. Uh, so that was all, all fabulous. And then um, in the first year we did, basically you do a master's in a year, you do the, all the, the uh, education piece whilst also doing your research. Um, and so that was really good because it's good to, good to learn. Love, love the learning. Um, and I, I did enjoy that. It was very stretching and I love to be stretched. So that was, that was really good. Um, and at the end of the year, they brought a whole load of us together from across the country to um, to do some more, you know, really intense, deep learning together. And that again, that was really good to connect with others who were working in the same areas, not not the same um, experiments, but all working in particle physics. That was really, yeah, really enjoyed that too. Um, but I did find that I started to get a little bored. Um, and I think that's because I need to do lots of things at once. I'm not very good at doing just the one thing at, at a time. Um, and I actually joined uh, the, the college I joined, Balliol College. I joined it because the provost was heading up Save British Science. And I had this passion for saving science. Because <laughs> this is, I mean, this is 30, yeah, 30 something years ago. Um, so we haven't come as far as we need to on that front. But anyway, it was uh, British science was looking threatened, and so I really wanted to do something about it because I was so passionate about science. Anyway, so I um, got involved with Save British Science, and that was hilarious because uh, we were we were teaching researchers how to speak properly for the radio, and there was this this one one time when we actually were getting them to put a polo in their mouth and to say say their words with a polo in a mouth. <laughs> Apparently, that's how you speak on the radio back in those days. So anyway, I was doing that, and then I got into writing. So I started to write. So at weekends, I'd write articles and newspaper articles, and uh, and then I got into public, you know, a lot of public lecturing, and so I did a bucket load of stuff to try and save British science whilst doing my PhD. Um, big fun. Wow. And then, um, and then what else? Uh, so I, I quite enjoyed that. And also got involved in music and planting trees, and so I just I, I'm someone who needs to do a lot of things all at once. So that was that was really good. Um, I would say though, after a year, I saw this poster that said, um, "How about you do a master's in medical physics?" And I thought, "Oh my goodness, that's what I should have done." Oh, yeah, you know, I didn't know about it when I started out my PhD uh, because uh, you know MRI and stuff was really quite early and quite new back in the day when I did my undergraduate. So it was all new stuff. Anyway, I saw this poster and thought, rats. But it was too late. You know, I was a, I was a year into my, my PhD. Um, and I still, you know, I loved particle physics. It was, it was a lot of fun. Did bucket loads of coding. I was basically in a, in a uh, I was in a dungeon. I spent three years, I, the way I described it, I spent three years in a dungeon underground coding. <laughs> um, which, you know, wore, wore off after a while. <laughs> 
but no, no, it was it was really fascinating. And then from the international perspective, obviously that was great. So I was based in Oxford, but we um, would go out to uh, to Hamburg quite you know very regularly to meet as a an international team. There were five hundred physicists from twelve countries, so we'd meet regularly over in Hamburg and talk about you know present in terms of what we were what we were doing and where we'd got with our our, our work our research. Um, so that was that was really fascinating as well meeting all those people in different countries and being part of a big big project and also learning about the public speaking piece you know learning how to present at conferences and things so that was really really useful um we did the um we, we were allowed to go to uh, an international conference so went off and did that in stanford which was and stanford's got the linear accelerator so that was fabulous to go out and see see that too um so no no it was a, it was a fascinating experience it was really good to get in deep with um with the research. I didn't do as much physics as I wanted to. I did more coding than physics. So it wasn't a, until the, the end of it when I started to do a bit more physics, I had to model um, you know, what I'd see in a detector for certain um, structures of protons. And so that was great to get back to a bit of, bit of the physics rather than the coding. So no, no, it was a fascinating experience and Oxford was brilliant. That's cool, yeah. Um, it was funny how you mentioned that you like doing lots at once because I suppose when when I read about your career, it's often described as eclectic. Um, so you've been in universities and in industry, um, you're on multiple patents, you have published in many research areas. So I guess I'd love to hear a bit more about the journey post-PhD to where you are now, I guess, some of the career highlights. Yeah, look, it was fascinating. From the, uh, In my last year of the PhD, um, Oh, here was something that I would love your listeners to, to hear about. We had to, as, as um, uh, PhD students, we had to give presentations to the whole um, Oxford physics department once a year. The first one I did was around climate change. So that was fascinating, gathering all the data around that. And it just, yeah, quite depressing that you know, what we were saying there, we're still saying now. But anyway, the next year I had to give a, a presentation on the discovery of the W and the Z boson. And... Um, and the people who discovered it were in the audience. <laughs> so you can imagine as a as a PhD student, you know, giving a bit of a, a public presentation to the whole physics department, particularly to two of the people who actually discovered the thing that you're talking about. Oh, that was that was that was nerve wracking. Anyway, um, there were you know, the, the sort of people that we had in the physics department of Oxford were pretty intense. You know, they were pretty amazing um, intellect. Anyway, I remember one day going down to the bike the bike shed because we used to cycle to to the department of back. Anyway, I'm in the bike shed and there's this guy there and it was a Friday and, and we were both leaving to go home. I said, oh, you know, what are you going to do this weekend? And he said, oh, I'm going to read about physics. <laughs> and I thought to myself, OK, I don't think I can see a career for myself in academia because if I just spent my whole life doing physics, I think I'd turn inside out. So um, that was, I think, you know, to your point about what I did next. I think I, I thought, you know, I don't know that this is for me. Um, Plus, uh, you know, I married a, an Australian and we, he wanted to move to Australia. And there's no synchrotrons in Australia. So I thought, OK, how am I going to be a particle physicist in Australia? I mean, there, there are particle physics teams here, but, you know, you know I'm, I'm an experimental physicist. How, how's that going to work? So um, um, plus we were going to move to Sydney and it was like, how on earth am I going to afford to live in Sydney on an academic salary? So that's a long-winded way of saying I eventually, after a couple of side trips i en ended up working at mckinsey um because it was just an, an interesting opportunity 
McKinsey really like so strategic management consulting firm. They really like people who've been to Oxford and Cambridge. who have got uh, numeracy, you know, strong numeracy skills, logical skills, and ideally, if they can talk as well, then you know that's the sweet spot. <laughs> and I guess with all my science communication work, I've had plenty of practice at that. So um, I got a role there, and that was absolutely fascinating. You know, I'm a, a scientist, but as a scientist, you think logically. You know, you think, um, but you also think creatively because you're an experimentalist um, and a researcher. So it, it sort of was, I managed to get my brain skills to work within the corporate environment and did a lot of work for uh, tech companies. So, you know, helping tech companies with their, their next strategy. Um, and that was, that was really good. Um, helped with a chapter of a, of a CEDAR book um, around clusters, innovation clusters, which is really interesting because that's now, you know, 30 years later, it's back in vogue. Very much so. Um, so that was that. And then I, um, I had Tommy, my first son. And um, I, had, I decided to take a year's uh, leave. There was no pay back in those days. And fell hopelessly and completely in love with Tommy. And um, felt... <laughs> yeah, he is. He's a lo very lovable fellow. Um, and at the end of my year, oh, my year of maternity leave, I actually got Tommy to write a letter to my employer... To, to McKinsey, obviously he didn't write it, I wrote it, <laughs> with a photograph of him on it saying, look, I'm really sorry, but I know you, you need my mummy back, but I need her more than you do. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't go back to McKinsey, I just wasn't sure, you know, McKinsey was a 24-7 type, they own your soul at McKinsey, like how was I going to be a mother and do that? Um, I think, you know, McKinsey's changed a lot since then and people are, they, they're becoming a lot more balanced, but back in the day it was going to be very hard. So, so I left, um, and looked after my boys, um, and had gave birth to Rory next, so two sons, and I just um, threw myself completely into being a mother. I did do a tiny bit of part-time work, um, but yeah, mostly being a full-time mom. so teaching them how to read, and how to count, and sing, and paint, and be physical, and you know, all the rest of it. So that was... It was incredibly reward, rewarding, unbelievably exhausting. Um, and, uh, you know, I had the, their first five and seven years of their life. I was there really helping them to grow into the beautiful young men that they are now. Anyway, so I did all of that. We all survived. <laughs> we all came out of it relatively sane. Um, but towards the end of that time, I did do some part-time work. We then moved up to Armadale and I did a little bit of part-time work in the physics department, just doing some, um, I did a tiny bit of research and a tiny bit of, um, what do you call it, demonstrating in the lab, which is really good to get back into it. Anyway, um, once both my boys were at school, um, I thought, oh, I should really think about what I'm going to do next. And at that same time, I got called up by the physics department saying, would you like to come and do a little bit of lecturing? And I thought, um, yeah, I spoke to my hubby, David, said, ah, oh, what do you reckon, sweetie? What, would this sound like a good idea? And he said, oh, I think that'd be great. Um, so I did. And it was hilarious because within two weeks, there was just me and one other fellow in the department. Um, it was, I describe it as like one of those cartoons, you know, when there's, someone's got a bomb and they pass it from one to the other. And I was left there standing holding this bomb. It's like, right, I've been out of physics for 10 years. I'm now looking after the physics department. There's one other fellow here who's lecture, he does two lectures a week and then he goes back into his office and disappears, I'll never see him. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was a, quite a ride. I, not, I nearly left, but thank goodness for 
the head of the chemistry department, he was awesome, and another, a, few, a couple of other chemistry lecturers who helped out, they were brilliant. But, you know, it was a great opportunity because I managed to, you know, I got the whole department to, to play with, and there was no one around to say, oh, we don't do it that way. Um, so I did a lot of, a lot of work uh, changing the way we taught, um, and then a tiny bit of work up front doing science communication research, but then a whole lot of science communication work to try and get more people to come and study physics uh, through big events. We, we, we invented science in the bush, um, where we had a couple of hundred students who come in and um, do hands-on stuff. We did the science and engineering challenge, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I could do any research I like. So once I've got my feet under the table, I thought, okay, maybe it's time to, um, you know, what research am I going to do? And the, this head of chemistry said to me, why don't you do some research into breast cancer diagnosis? I see this, this guy using synchrotrons. He's come over from England. He's down at Monash. Why don't you work with him? So I reached out and, this, and he said yes. So that got me into all of that. I'll try and keep it shorter, honey, so this will go on for hours hour otherwise. So I did that, worked with him on synchrotrons. We were basically um, looking at collagen. So inside breast tissue, there's a, a triple helix protein called collagen, and it changes structure um, if you've got a metastatic tumour. And we were using small angle X-ray scattering to understand that. Um, and I started to use these things called wavelets to do some pattern recognition on the um, on the on the SACS images and use that as a and then do machine learning on that to um, to decide whether you know, as a diagnostic tool. So we, we um, what did we do? We patented that. Worked with uh, pathologists across Australia, but this was a, again another international program. So I worked with synchrotrons in the UK and Italy, researchers from there and Canada. So you know, I really like that big collaborative piece and cross-disciplinary. So I did that, loads, um, uh, loads of work to, to update the physics department as well as the science communication, as I said. Um, then what else? Um, I think my favorite there was I set up a, um, an honors course where uh, the only assignment was to write a 250 word piece for the local newspaper. And lots of students did that because they thought it'd be easy, but actually it's really difficult to write 250 words. It's quite easy to write a thousand, but two hundred and fifty is hard. So anyway, that was a lot of fun. Anyway, so um, and I think my highlight there was um, was I did a lot of work at reaching out to to young people to study STEM, particularly women. I remember once this school came over. Um, I didn't know where they were coming from, uh, but they came. Over, they wanted a, a lecture on uh, astronomy, so I gave them a lecture on the accretion, the solar system's accretion model. And um, a couple of minutes in, I realised they didn't speak any English. <laughs> Um, but they did have an interpreter, but which was quite interesting because I had no idea what the interpreter was saying. And at one point, everyone started laughing. And I'm thinking, what are they laughing about? I'm talking about the solar system. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. Anyway, so um, I got very frustrated with academia because I just couldn't achieve things fast enough. And I like to have an impact, and I like to have an impact as quickly as I can because you only live once. So um, and for me, and it's not the same for everybody, for me it just wasn't, uh, I just couldn't do it fast enough. So um, I got a little bit worried because I thought, gosh, if I stay here, I'm never going to get out. Um, and then we launched into open innovation, which is this approach of saying, I don't have all the ideas. There's all these people all around the world who've got some great ideas. Um, and uh, via some circuitous route, I ended up being global head of open innovation at Cadbury. Um, so this was looking for new ideas uh, for confectionery, but also ideas for how to solve challenges. So for instance, we were trying to develop um, chewing gum that would degrade because there's a real problem people spit out chewing gum on the path and it stays there and councils get really really cross about that <laughs> and 
and they were about to charge Cadbury for this. So uh, we were developing um, chewing gum that would degrade. Anyway, the team came to me and said, "Look, we wanted to, we just, we need to experiment with how to whether it's actually working or not." So we thought about it, and then we got in touch with a shoe company, a shoe manufacturing company. Now to test shoes, you put them on the wooden poles, and then you make the shoes go up and down so they're being smashed on the ground to see if they'll they'll last. So I thought, well, why don't we put the chewing gum in there as well? And then you've got this controlled experiment. The shoes are going up and down. You can check um, what's going on in the environment in terms of moisture and temperature. <laughs> so that was one. Anyway, um, then uh, all sorts of things like how do you get air into confectionery? How do you measure lactose crystalline, crystallinity? How do you measure mouthfeel? Um, how do you measure the crumb texture? Um, blah, 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 blah. And that led to oh, all sorts of um, really interesting things that we did. And one of them was... Um, taking an idea from uh, from defence. And so defence were, there was a research, a physics research, I think at Nottingham Uni in the UK, doing research around making lightweight material for tanks. Uh, she was making an alumina ceramic matrix with holes in it, then changing the temperatures and the pressures and the gases, which it turned out was just changing the um, uh, surface tension so that then uh, molten aluminium could go in really quickly. So then you can imagine a bubble texture that's got really, it's really lightweight, but really strong. Anyway, I thought that would be nice for sweets. You imagine if you got a boiled sweet with all this liquid in it that you can make happen really, really quickly um, on a manufacturing line. Uh, so, yeah, that led to ballistic confectionery. So I've got a patent on that. The other one was actually a polymer extrusion for pressure sensors in sales, um, which leads you can make uh, down to 15 micron hole, um, uh, uh, gosh, holes, long holes, capillary holes in, in confectionery. So if it's capillary, that means the liquid will stay in there. So that means that you put liquid in the confectionery on the shelf, it'll stay there. But as soon as you start chewing, it'll start mixing. So a bunch of patterns there around um, oh, around having different chemicals in so that when you chew, things happen in your mouth, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. So that was that. I uh, got involved in strategy. I was part of the long-term R&D uh, leadership team for Cadbury. Um, helped them to take on innovation strategy, which was very collaborative using, uh, working with the, People working in um, the commercial side of things, so the marketing side, the legal side, the manufacturing side, the finance side, the R&D side, the new product development side. So again, that again, the common thread of working with lots of different people with different heads and different minds and thoughts. That was really, really great. Anyway, came back to Australia because um, that's what we wanted to do as a family. And, uh, you know, I couldn't really... And um, the then family wanted to be in um, Canberra. And I couldn't really lead a multinational uh, in innovation for a multinational from Canberra. I just couldn't see how I was going to do that other than do a lot of traveling. And, you know, I just didn't want to leave my boys. So that wasn't going to work. Um, and I struggled. Honestly, I struggled back in Australia to find what to do because Australia was at least 10 years behind on the innovation scene. Um, and so, yeah, stumbled around a bit, did a few things, ended up being CEO at ANU Enterprise, which is uh, the commercial arm of ANU. And we had three business units there. One was the International College, so teaching international students English. One was um, uh, a uh, SME that was manufacturing mass spectrometers. And the other one was a, like a consulting arm. So worked on that, learned how to be a CEO, learned how to um, report to a board, sold one part of the business, bought a new business, turned around uh, or saved another part of the business. So lots of things I learned there, which was really great. Um, and in my, that was a day job and then I've 
always been someone who does the got the job, but then you've got all these other things that you do as well. So the great thing about being in Canberra is that you can go and talk to ministers and ministers' advisors and um, the public service about your ideas. So the ones that I'm there's two that I'm really proud of. One is um, what's now called the um, Industry Growth Centres. It was originally the Precincts Program. So that was uh, Greg Combe, the minister then Minister for Industry who was looking for ideas, a mate of mine said, oh, you must go, just go up and talk to his chief of staff and give him your ideas. So I said, look, what we need to do is we need to draw together ecosystems around specific industries that we think should be growing in Australia. Get your big business, your small business, your entrepreneurs, your investors, your researchers all together, work out what the opportunities are for export, and then align that whole supply chain and ecosystem around that. So that became the precincts program. I got on the board of that. And then um, now it's, it, it morphed with a change in government to the industry growth centres. I'm really proud of that because that's been going for quite a while. Um, the other one I'm really proud of is um, the Innovation Exchange at the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, so that was, uh, again, someone said to me, look, Julie Bishop wants to set up um, an innovation entity within Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, particularly around aid. How do we inject innovation into aid? So I said, open innovation. <laughs> um, you know, people around the, all, all around the world have got great ideas. Why don't we, you know, tap into all those ideas all around the world and see if we can support them to, to grow and, um, and have a social impact. So an example there would be Ruangaru in Jakarta, Indonesia. A couple of young entrepreneurs realised that kids were not benefiting from school. I mean, you can imagine a, a number of the, the classes in countries like Indonesia are just so big it's difficult to actually get an education um, or a personalised education. So they set up an online platform. They've now got 13 million students on that platform. So that's 13 million students being educated uh, in a way that they wouldn't have been able to ed get an education at school. Another one, um, 40K Plus, based in Cambodia, that's providing personalised education, education to students in little villages in Cambodia that have no internet. So the way I describe that is what we have no excuse in Australia. If they can do personalised education in a little village with no internet, we can do it in Australia. <laughs> um, so I, I really loved giving Judy Bishop advice. She put me on her international reference group to give her more advice. There were about 15 of us from all around the world giving us advice about things to do. And my next piece of advice was build innovation ecosystems. Because if you want to scale up ideas, you need a whole ecosystem around these ideas um, to scale them up. And that led to the Scaling Frontier Innovation Program, which is still running and is seen globally in aid as, as global best practice in terms of what's happening there. So that was that, and then other, that was sort of the night job, and the other night jobs were a bunch of boards, um, so Anstone Nuclear Medicine, building a Molybden 99 manufacturing plant, um, Taxi, the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, blah, 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 so a range of boards um, that I was on. Um, and then the opportunity came up to, uh, that was while I was CEO of Annual Enterprise, and then the opportunity came up to um, set up a company that would build an ecosystem in Canberra. Um, so that was the Canberra Innovation Network. So um, I was the uh, inaugural CEO of that, set that up, and that was mass collaboration. That was, you know, uh, what was it? It was six universities and research and TAFE all working together with the um, ACT government. But the important thing was that we set this up to be incredibly inclusive. So basically it was an ecosystem that attracted more people to the ecosystem which built itself. Um, so that was, I just, yeah, that's another thing I'm really, really proud of, setting that up and basically setting the culture up to be incredibly inclusive and collaborative. Uh, we worked in schools, we worked in large business, small business, whole industry sectors, 
Um, so we, we ran a, um, a workshop to say what we need to do in the space industry and out popped, we need a space agency. So our chief minister wrote to the, the federal government and said, let's set up a space agency and then a space agency is set up. Um, we worked with startups. We had a co-working space, an incubator, an accelerator. We had venture capital and, and um, uh, angel investors, and we were um, very global. So we took our startups overseas. We brought a whole lot of global people to see us, including the chief scientist of Israel. Um, so yeah, I think that that Seabin is seen as a, another is a gold standard for Australia in terms of how you build these ecosystems. So that was that was brilliant. Um, gosh, what else then? Um, went over to UON and had that PVC role, which was a bit of a short and sweet experience um, for all sorts of reasons. But um, the main one was that then Julie Bishop was looking for a chief innovation officer at DFAT. And I thought, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, and I got that job. So I went down and did that as a chief innovation officer. And then they made me the chief scientist as well. So I got involved in a range of, um, you know, huge range of things from security and intelligence through to aid, uh, through to um, soft diplomacy using science. Uh, no, it was, it was a really great role. Um, and just before that, Julie made me Australia's innovation champion for MICTA, Mexico, Indonesia, Korea, Turkey, and Australia. So there's that global role as well. And, um, and then I started to do quite a lot of, um, not just the science diplomacy, but the, um, oh gosh, what would you call it? Innovation diplomacy. So I traveled around Australia to find out what we were doing on an innovation perspective and then went overseas to really tell the story and showcase Australia. Um, and that was absolutely fascinating. That was great to go to places like India and obviously Indonesia, um, P&G, um, went to Vietnam quite a lot, blah, blah, blah. Quite a lot of that was, was really, really valuable. And I got to inspire people in overseas countries to take on science and innovation, which was which I really, I love that inspirational bit, trying to encourage people to give it their best and, and know that they can do it. Um, as part of that, I was also on the board of the Global Innovation Fund, $200 million fund um, that is investing in startups that are helping people live on less than $5 a day. And I'm really proud of the work that we do, we do there. I'm not on that board anymore, sadly. That was that. Um, and I also got put on the investment committee for Main Sequence Ventures, which is an Australian venture capital fund um, that is trying to build deep tech industries here in Australia. So it was great to still have my foot in Australia to be building um, um, emerging industries here in Australia. Um, anyway, then I decided I wanted to come to Queensland and got this role as heading up innovation for Queensland, um, much nearer my boys, which is really lovely, and um, helping to build new economies, new jobs here in, in Queensland. Awesome. Uh, just basically, wow. Um, so, I guess a lot of questions pop up from that. I'm not sure where to start. Maybe um, with you've you've been super super busy throughout your career, um, but you seem to have managed to keep a pretty good work life balance by the sounds with your hiking and horse riding. Um, how did you manage that work life balance? Uh, I wouldn't say I manage the work life balance particularly well, but I do do more than work. Um, so yeah, um, my boys are very important to me. I'd say, obviously early on, it, it's funny. And what the way I describe it to some people is that you get a balance over your whole career. It's very difficult to get balance at any one point in time, um, but you can get a balance over your career. I think you just get used to being permanently split. 
uh, feeling like you should be in all, all sorts of places all at once. But I think that's also partly my personality because I want to do everything and I want to do it all now. So that's just genetics. You know, I'm just, um, I can constantly see all the things that could be done and I want to do them all, but I also want to keep everybody happy. So it's, <laughs> so it's not easy. How have I done it? I think I'm very, very lucky in that I have been born with a lot of energy. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm quite lucky on that front. And health, I've been very relatively... I had a couple of bursts of being quite unhealthy, but um, a couple of five weeks stints of basically not being able to get out of bed. Um, but mostly I've been really, really healthy. So that's really lucky, really, really lucky too. Um, and had good people around me. Yeah. Very important to have those networks. Um, yeah. I guess that's a good transition into a question about um, your networks. So where is it? Ah. So how do you how do you think your peers and networks have I guess shaped your career? Like, have there been any people that have popped up in your life that have really transformed and spurred a, spurred an idea? Yeah, well, you know that fabulous head of um, of uh, chemistry at University of New England. You know, he really took me aside and said, "Hey, here's something that you could do." He believed in me. It was a it was a challenging time. I'd been ten years out of physics, seven years out of full time work. He didn't have a lot, I didn't have a lot of confidence, uh, but he filled me with confidence and also you know, gave me suggestions and supported me. So he's been very influential in my life and I've since reached out to him and thanked him. Um, he's, yeah, he's a very important person in my life. Then um, there was uh, actually the, the, the general manager of the long-term R&D facility for Cadbury. I was really anxious about working with women and reporting to a woman because I'd only worked with men. I'm a physicist. I'd really, it's just been men. And I thought, oh God, how is this going to work? Um, but she was a really fantastic role model. And she taught me something that I, I say carefully because um, not everyone thinks this is a good thing. But she taught me that as a leader, you have to be a servant as well as being a strong leader. Um, and that, I think, has stood me in good stead. Uh, she, I saw her one night. I, it was a, it was, I was there late, 7 o'clock or something. Everyone else had gone. She was there. I went to the kitchen to go and get a drink. And there she was loading up the dishwasher. Now, some women find that offensive because they think, oh my gosh, you know, the woman was there loading the dishwasher. I tell you right now, she was not loading the dishwasher every time. <laughs> but it was it was showing that every now and again you can. Uh, and that was important to me from several perspectives. Not from the female perspective, but from the perspective of being a, a as a leader, being a servant. And also as a leader, ignoring hierarchy. You know, there she was, the head of this entity. She was on the global leadership team for science and technology. And she was able to step down and help us. That was a big lesson for me. Um, and also a lesson that you could be a woman in leadership. <laughs> that was great to see that. Um, and then when they, they say you can't be what you can't see. And I think that's absolutely true. And that's some, one reason why I try to get out there as much as I can so that women can see, young women can see, you can be a leader, a woman in leadership. You can drive strategy. Um, and you can be strong and directive and all the rest of it. Anyway, so that was that one. And then, um, gosh, who else? Back in Australia, that the um, general manager of Questacom was great. He, he, I don't know how it happened, but he, well, he put me on the, he's put me forward to be on the council, advisory council for Questacon, and that launched me into a whole new stratosphere. And he really believed in me, and it's good when you've got someone at that level who believes in you. So that that was, yeah, that was really good. And then another fellow, um, who was a very much a policy person, who was very connected into politicians he drew me into that political world and yeah that was 
that was great. So mostly, I'm ashamed to say mostly men. One woman, but uh, so three men and one woman. Oh no, I'm going to add another one. I'm going to add another one, which is a woman, Julie Bishop. Yeah. Yeah. She was really, you know, a really big help helped me. You know, just putting me on her advisory council, uh, her international reference group, making her Australia's champion for innovation. Um, and I remember once her saying to me when I became chief scientist at DFAT, she said, "Oh." You should be chief scientist of Australia. <laughs> yeah, so she really, really believed in me, which was, which was great. So another question, I guess, from before, from things you've said today. So you grew up in England. Um, is this is this correct? I think you you said once that you grew up in the same neighbourhood as Andy Circus. Is that right? I don't think I did. Um, Toby Jones, who is a an actor and a director, um, quite a well known one, but no. Thought I heard that. A- anyway, um, so firstly, I guess, how do you think your childhood shaped your career options? Um, and then a second question from that, because you you grew up in England, you've had to, I guess, move a lot during your career. Um, did you find this challenging and has it gotten easier? Um, so to start with, I'm an explorer, I think. I remember at um, UNE giving a talk to some young people about you know, careers in STEM and saying to them, look, if you want to be an explorer, like you can imagine with a mach- machete out there going through the jungle, that's what research is. You know, you're at the forefront, you're out there exploring. And as a young girl, I, um, I was very lucky because I had a pony and I just used to go off out riding off in the fields. My parents had no clue where I was. Um, and so I was an adventurer from a very young age and I had that adventurous nature encouraged so that was that helps I think if you want to be out and I've always been at the forefront of stuff so I like being at the forefront and adventuring so that was that I had a grandfather a fabulous fantastic grandfather who believed I could do anything um I think the only time it came back to bite him was when I applied to go into space and um, <laughs> he was hoping I wouldn't wouldn't be successful and I wasn't <laughs> uh, but he he really really supported me and made me think I could do anything um, anything so that was that was really good um, I did travel around a lot, so we lived in um, Holland for a couple of years when I was young, and then uh, a bit of time in New York and in um, in South America. So I was used to all this international stuff, which then I think means it's so easy to move and it's so easy to work with people internationally because it's just in your you know you, you've got it, you understand it. So that was a big help. Um, my father was a, a scientist. Um, so I think that encouraged me into you know studying the the science side of things. Um, yeah, I think that's probably about it. Cool. Um, oh, so, I guess merging two of your fields, um, like you've done a lot of work with women in STEM, which is awesome, and then you've done heaps with innovation. Uh, do you have I guess any ideas with merging the two? Like, what innovative ideas have you come up with for bringing more women into STEM? I've got a good idea. So, um, or a good question. I feel ashamed that I started 30 years to try and encourage young people into STEM, especially women, and our stats are still incredibly bad, really, really bad. So, you know, I try to do things differently, but I think we need a whole lot of paradigm shifts. It's a very complex, it's a really, really complex issue, uh, but we do need a, a more, much more of a concerted effort to do something about it. So some of the innovative ideas were actually not mine. Um, this one um, that I'm going to tell you about now shocked me. 
So uh, back at Camera Innovation Network, we decided we'd run a, um, was it, a space camp. So it's a weekend getting, I think it was year 10 kids to come out and do a space camp, learn about space and get some um, industry people to come and talk to them about space and look through telescopes and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, the team, my team, did a video to advertise it and um, they showed me the video and it was just girls. And I looked and I thought, I don't think we can do that. I, I don't think we should do that. We can't just have girls in a video. Well, what about the boys? And then I thought, no, these, these, these people, they know what they're doing. Let's run with it and let's see what happens. And um, we got 50% girls. So 50% of the people that came for the weekend were, were girls. And I don't think we'd have got that if we put boys in the video. It really taught me that, um, that we need to actually go much further to encourage women into STEM than just saying, hey, this is a great, this is a great place to be. Um, the other thing that the team did was they then, which taught me a lot, was they then had um, a women in, a girl, girls in STEM activity that was very much about the sorts of things that girls tend to like. Not just that, but there were a lot of, like, making jewellery and things like that, which, again, I hadn't thought of because I think I'm actually quite male, um, so I think a little bit like a male, so it didn't occur to me. But, you know, it hit me the other day. I went to, to see um, a programme that was being designed, uh, being, being uh, delivered for young people around STEM, and it was, there were only two girls in this room. And I looked at what they were doing. They were building bridges um, and rockets. And I thought, oh, my goodness, we're just not getting it right. We actually need to step in the shoes of girls and, and think like girls as well as like boys. Um, and I know I'm stereotyping because I'm a girl and I did physics and I don't really think like a girl. But some girls do and they still need to do science. You know, and they still have a valuable input um, and a career they can have in science. Um, the other thing I did was, uh, end of last year, realised that you know I was the chief scientist at DFAT. There was a chief defence scientist, there was a chief scientist at CSIRO, and we had a, um, a minister, um, sorry, an all-women, and there was a minister for science who was a woman. So I realised that we haven't shown women in leadership enough in science. We show that you can be a scientist, but we haven't shown that you can be a woman leader in science, that you can be driving strategy and a country from a science perspective. So I uh, went to Karen Andrews, and she and I... And Tanya Munro were in a newspaper article to try and showcase, here we are, you, you can be this. This is what you can be. You can take your career in your hands and you can be a leader in this. You don't have to be male. Um, but, you know, we've still got a long way to go. We still need to do a lot more. What I'd love to do is do a, like an, an IDEO journey map. You start right at the beginning of a, of a child's life and walk in the shoes of a girl and look at the things that need to happen. So, for instance, it really tears my heart apart when I hear of women teachers in primary school telling girls don't study maths that's what boys do but that is happening um so this is whole system that we need to change mm. um so i guess i've got three more questions hopefully we can get through them uh so this question is one i've been asking everyone so far which is just mum and dad um but if you were given four years and had absolutely no other commitments uh, what would you be interested in researching well I'd like to say, for a start, I couldn't just research. It would have to be active research. So it would have to, I, I could, it would be experimental research. Yeah. And I would like, what would I like to research? I would like to research how do we um, build inclusive new economies using emerging science and technology? Um, and how do we change those systems to make sure they are incredibly inclusive so... Uh, you've got diversity, so that's females, that's indigenous, 
but also that it's people who currently are frightened by it will be drawn into it. Awesome. That'd be very interesting. Cool. So final two questions then. Uh, what impact do you think innovation will have on our society's future and what changes do you think are needed for this to, I guess, come to fruition? That is a massive question. I think we're going through a, a huge disruption right now. I don't think any of us quite understand how this is going to transform the world. And disruptions like this in the past have. Disruptions like this in the past have led to incredible breakthroughs because people have had the time to sit and think about, um, about big challenges. Um, not many of us actually have that time, but there will be some people that have that time. Um, but there are also disruptions lead to us having to live differently, work differently, and um, have new jobs and economies. So I think right now we live in this transition time when I feel it's a great opportunity to really think about our new economies. So, you know, we're, we're adjusting to technology. One reason people get frightened of new economies is because they're frightened of the technology. We're all using it now. Look at us on this Zoom right now. So I think it's a great time to making that transition. People are ready for it. People are already using these new technologies. We're going to need to work differently and live differently. So that's going to need technology. It's going to lead to new companies, new industries. Uh, but I think we're also going to have to have different societies because we're going to have a massive amount of people without work. You know, what does that mean for our societal structures? Um, what does that mean for the fact that some people have a lot of money and if this is going to get worse, there'll be lots of people with not, you know, not enough money. So I think we're going to see, I, I hope we'll see innovation in societal structures um, and science will have a big part to play in that, you know, social sciences for a start have a big part to play in that yeah I, f I feel like we could talk on that for days yes yes exactly <laughs> new governments you know what's government going to look like i think we're going to have to become highly collaborative um across all of these silos that we have right now so and that's going to need obviously you know human um science <laughs> but also technology technological science as well cool all right so finally to wrap up uh where can people go to find out more about you and your research or any upcoming things you've got on? So check me out on LinkedIn. Um, I like to use, or, t or Twitter. I use Twitter a lot. <laughs> um, so you can see what I'm doing there. Um, and I tend to try to put up stuff there that I think is worth people reading. So feel free to follow me on both of those. But also check out Advanced Queensland. So our website, we've got a lot of information on Advanced Queensland about the things that we're doing. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining NI in the future. A pleasure. I'm wishing everyone all the very best for their exciting, the exciting way that you will be driving the future. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this episode of NI in the Future. If anything from today's episode sparked an idea or you'd like to find out more, I'd love to hear about it. So leave a comment on YouTube, find me on Twitter, rate the podcast or visit niinthefuture.com to get in contact. I look forward to you joining us for the next episode, so keep an eye on the future for when it comes out.